Conclusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we inject weird and wonderful science directly into your genes. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, I speak with Narelle Chokchetan about honey as a therapy. But first up, here's the news of emotional productivity helmets. Emotional surveillance at work, not in the US, but in China. South China Morning Post reports that the Hangzhou Zhongheng Electric Factory in China has given workers helmets fitted with EEG electrodes to read their brains. The project is backed by the government. The stated intention is to increase productivity by using the data to change the frequency and length of break times to reduce mental stress. South China Morning Post says that China has implemented the brain reading hats in at least a dozen institutions, including factories, public transport, state-owned companies, and the military. Jin Jia, Associate Professor of Brain Science and Cognitive Psychology at Ningbo University's Business School, said that when the system issues a warning, the manager asks the worker to take a day off or move to a less critical post. Some jobs require high concentration, and there's no room for a mistake. It sounds a lot like the EEG caps that measure driver fatigue and wake people up who've lost their focus on the road. Lightweight, wireless sensors hidden in safety helmets and uniform caps sense the workers' electroencephalograph EEG to read their brainwaves and stream the data to computers that use artificial intelligence algorithms to detect emotional spikes, such as depression, anxiety or rage. It seems really unlikely that even with artificial intelligence, that they're detecting these sudden emotional changes from EEG in a helmet, because nobody in the world has even got close to this sort of detection. However, if they can measure people losing attention or succumbing to extreme fatigue, who are then given a day off or moved to a less critical post, then perhaps you'll get the same benefits without the implied privacy invasion. The best I could find online is EEG research showing a correlation with positive, negative and neutral emotions, but not more complex changes in emotion. Chinese officials are claiming hundreds of millions of dollars in extra profits from extra productivity from using the helmet data. A manager of the shipping company Ningbo Shenyang Logistics said the company was using the devices mainly to train new employees. The brain sensors were integrated into virtual reality headsets to simulate different scenarios in the work environment. He claims millions of dollars of increased profits for the company. To me, this kind of crazy, inappropriate use of not really working technology to get more productivity out of workers 
sounds like some of the management excesses of Western corporations with deliberate desk shortages so that workers have to fight for resources and other practices that make managers feel like they're doing something but make workers want to be somewhere else. Assuming the Chinese EEG system really is detecting emotional changes, then rather than thinking that workers who are upset are faulty and need time out or to be replaced, it would make more sense to understand that the worker has observed something important which worries them. So they need help rather than replacement. Responding to the cause of the emotional spike instead of the symptom will always be better for everyone. Hopefully, this isn't a practice that executives outside China decide to copy in the chase for increased profits. You're listening to Ian Wolfe on Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. Narelle Chokchetan is a postdoctoral researcher at the Infection, Immunity and Innovation I3 Institute at the University of Technology, Sydney. Her speciality is microbiology and she's studying how we can use honey as a therapy for lots of conditions involving bacteria. I began by asking her, can honey be used as a medicine internally or externally? I look at it in both respects. So I look at the medicinal properties of honey in general. When we talk about it being used as a medicine to treat infections caused by bacteria, we talk about it externally. So it's used topically on your skin. The honey needs to come in contact for it to be effective in that respect but there's a whole different type of activity that kicks in when we eat the honey and that's what we call the prebiotic activity and that's when you eat a food that our own bodies don't use but the bacteria living in our gut uses that as its food source and it changes the balance of the microbes in our gut. Honey as a topical treatment is that a traditional remedy anywhere? It has been used for thousands and thousands of years in this way. So it's used as a wound treatment. So any kind of wound, cut, burn, a skin infection of any kind, you can put honey on that topically. And it has uh, activity that we call antibacterial activity. So it can fight off those bacteria and other microbes that cause the infection and also help promote wound healing as well. So should it be in a first aid kit? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's in my first aid kit. Any particular type of honey for topical treatment? There are lots of research articles and news articles and things like that on manuka honey being a very good wound treatment. And it does have a special type of antibacterial activity that no other honey seems to have. So absolutely, if it's for an infection, I would recommend using these manuka honeys. But it's always really important to get a wound product that's appropriately packaged. That means it's been sterilised and it's been approved by the regulatory bodies, either in Australia or around the world. So you're looking for approval from the Therapeutics Goods Administration or the FDA, you know, other drug type institutions as well. And that's to ensure that it's been sterilised. You're not introducing anything new or unwanted into that wound bed. So the antibiotic properties aren't as useful if it's contaminated? It's not that it is contaminated. So all honey and lots of other foods and 
things that come from nature have the chance of carrying bacterial spores and these spores are dormant so they're not active versions of the bacteria but they do wait for the conditions to be right before they can then replicate and and can potentially cause infections so if the honey's been sterilized then there's minimal chance of those spores getting into the wound and then causing any kind of new infection. You just don't want to introduce anything new in there. And, you know, if you think about where honey comes from, there's pollen, there's probably some bee bits in there if it hasn't been filtered fully. So you don't want to be introducing any foreign objects into a wound that has the potential of being infected very easily. And I guess the internal part is more for your gut than for wound healing. Absolutely. So when you eat the honey, the effects that we see are... That, that antibacterial activity that I mentioned is completely lost in the digestion process. So if it does survive past your stomach acid, which is very unlikely, it's such a small molecule that causes this antibacterial activity that that all gets absorbed before it can have an effect more systemically in the body. So when you eat it, though, you're introducing a whole range of different sugars. Uh, so you've got your simple sugars like the fructose and the glucose, which everyone knows about. But then you've got a whole range of complex sugars, which we can't digest ourselves as humans, but the bacteria living in our gut thrive on these complex sugars. And honey does have some of those complex sugars that they use as a food source, and then it can help to change the balance of the bacteria and offer benefits to us that we otherwise wouldn't be able to have. So what sort of benefits do you get when you encourage the right sort of bacteria? So you're obviously aiding digestion that's a that's one of the first ones but these bacteria also help to feed other bacteria in there so there are certain types of sugars that certain bacteria will favor and then they break those down and then you can kickstart a whole range of different bacteria that can use those broken down sugars so it's just about encouraging lots of different types of bacteria to grow because diversity is key for a, a healthy gut but also when they're fed the right types of things, they produce things called short chain fatty acids. And an example of this is butyrate. And that's one of the most commonly researched examples because it's got known protective effects against the development of colon cancer and other gut diseases as well. So it's a, it's a huge area of interest for us research wise, because you know if we can mitigate a whole range of different diseases that stem from the gut by encouraging the right types of bacteria to produce the right beneficial compounds, then we've got some treatment options there. And what about some of the things that are sold as medi honey? So the medi honey usually refers to that manuka honey that I've that I mentioned with the high antibacterial properties. Medi honey is a brand. But there are lots of other honeys that now just say medi honey or medical honey. It's usually the manuka honeys. They're usually only good for those wound applications. So if you eat them, you're not getting any extra prebiotic benefits that you wouldn't get from any other honey. So it's mainly the antibacterial factor that they're focusing on when they say medi honey. And there's ones that label themselves as pre or probiotic now too. There are some, yes. There is one prebiotic honey that's currently on the market and it has got TGA approval, so Therapeutics Goods Administration approval as a prebiotic. So during my PhD, I researched lots of different types of honey to see. And it seems that lots of different honeys do have and will have this prebiotic activity because it comes from those complex sugars. And you can get these complex sugars in many different floral varieties of honey. But the prebiotic honey that's on the market, they've done some extra research to really understand what profile of sugars, those complex sugars, give you the best outcomes in the gut. And that's what their uh, TGA approval is based on. So the marketing is very 
vague and they kind of give you the impression that they might have cultures like yogurt does. There's a difference between pro and prebiotics. Probiotics are the cultures, the bacterial cultures that you get in yogurts, in those fermented milk supplements. Uh, you can get them in the little capsules. So they're actual living bacteria that you ingest a huge chunk of them at a time. And prebiotics are the complex carbohydrates, things like fibres, resistant starches that we don't use. So they act as a food source for the microbes already living inside of us. So if it says it's got probiotic cultures, it means that there have been those friendly bacteria added to that food or that it naturally has those like yogurt but if it's a prebiotic it means it's a food that will feed the bacteria already living in your gut so in that respect honey will only be a prebiotic because of those complex sugars it's a food that feeds our gut microbes and how did you come to this area of research it started 10 years ago when I was looking for a research project to do during my honours year and I did a degree in biotechnology, so I thought, you know, it was about drug development and I was really interested in microbiology as well. That was my major. So I was looking at bacteria and different ways that we could combat disease using biotechnology. So it was very, you know, developing new antibiotics based. And then I came across a research poster on honey and I thought, oh, honey, that's a that's not a real science. Probably it's something that you take because your grandmother tells you to take it and their parents and their parents have told them to take it. But when I looked at it and I talked to the researchers that were doing that this area of research, I thought, oh, there's actually some really good science behind this. So it caught my eye and I thought, it's a great topic. We use honey at home as a medicine. I didn't realise all the good science behind it. I definitely wanted to be a part of that. And, you know, because I was so interested in this microbes causing infection and I know that resistance to antibiotics is a huge issue, if you can use honey to help combat some of those resistance issues, it's great because it's been used for thousands of years. Bacteria have never learned to become resistant to the honey. So there's obviously something that still works. So it's been all about trying to understand what it is in the honey that gives it such good medicinal properties. And so you were saying that largely for the topical honey, it's the manuka factor. Are there other things as well that make it an antibiotic for a topical treatment? Absolutely. So the manuka factor is important for that wound treatment. I'd say it is one of the best honeys to use on any type of wound. But all honeys will have some level of antibacterial activity, even the one that you have in your pantry. So honey is got this really high concentration of sugars and that dehydrates or it dries out the bacteria and they can't keep replicating and causing the infection. It also has a low pH, which means it's slightly acidic. And again, that's something that bacteria can't tolerate. And a lot of honeys that have good levels of antibacterial activity that aren't manuka have it from the production of hydrogen peroxide, which is like a weak bleach. And this is it's not toxic to our skin. It's produced in very low but constant quantities. So when, you, when the honey comes in contact with that wound, if there's any sort of liquid there, whether that's wound exudate or anything like that, it starts to produce that hydrogen peroxide activity, which then wipes out a whole different range of bacteria. And it's very effective on fungi as well. So things like tinea, jock itch, works on those. So... That sterilised, um, safe-to-use-on-wounds honey, is that available in pharmacies? Yes, it is. It is available in pharmacies. It's usually near the other antiseptics and ointments that are available. Uh, you can get that in. They used to have just pure honey in a tube, but now they've got it in a gel base to help with the sticky factor. You can also get 
bandages and gauzes that are impregnated with honey, they're usually in the hospital clinics or the GP clinics, so you can request those. And they also have these little adhesive honey bandages as well that you can get from the chemist. So at this point, are you focusing more on gut bacteria or are you still looking at both applications of honey? I do both. So I mainly work on the antimicrobial activity here at I3 because we're very interested in the antibiotic resistance issue. But we are also very interested in microbiomes and how communities of microbes work together. And that's where the gut work really fits in. So I am looking to continue that here as well. I guess we can imagine a little bit the the wound sort of research. With the gut research, it's is it just clinical trials or is it a lot of culturing in the lab? Or what's the day-to-day like to look at how honey affects microbes in the gut? It starts off with a lab approach because it's very expensive and very hard to go straight into clinical trials. But what we do is we'll set up what what we call an artificial gut system. So you've got this whole digestion process that replicates what happens when you eat the food and includes things like, what does your saliva do to break down that food? What about that stomach acid? How do we replicate the small intestine to make sure that all the little things that we wouldn't normally expect to travel any further in the digestive tract, they get removed as well. So we've got this whole system that we've got using lots of different enzymes that you can get from you know, commercial suppliers, dialysis tubing to replicate the, uh, the small intestine. Uh, and then the large intestine is replicated using lots of different microbes. So we can do them with cultures that we grow in the lab, or we can get them from stool samples from volunteers who want to come and donate their gut microbes to us. So you can set it up in both ways. And that gives us a testing system to test that initial idea to see whether it's worth following up. If we see something that looks promising, then absolutely we can go and start recruiting people for a clinical trial and say, oh, do you want to have a spoonful of honey and see how it affects your gut microbes? And yeah, lots of people are very interested in what's going on in their gut and they love the honey. So it's it's a good system. So you have a whole simulated digestive tract in your lab. That must be huge. It's not actually as big as you think because microbes are tiny, so we can just do it on a much smaller scale. But yes, we do have, you know, a certain set of things that need to happen. There's a whole process, so it'll get digested in the mouth, the artificial Mm. mouth for a little while, and then it moves to the stomach with all the right enzymes and the acid level. Then it gets moved to the, you know, you get bile salts and things that kick in at the small intestine. So there is a system that needs to happen, but... It's not quite, you know, an artificial looking gut, but just a series of tubes that get fed at the right time. Does it have a name? (laughs) No, it doesn't actually. (laughs) Well, I'll have to think of one. (laughs) So you've been involved in science communication with FameLab. Yes, so FameLab is a competition where you have three minutes to talk about your PhD research or your research area. And it was actually the first time that I took my research area to the public or to anyone, I'd never really presented my PhD work because there was commercial interest, so I couldn't talk about it. So FameLab was the first time that I got out there and I told my PhD story. Yeah, people loved it. It was a great experience. I learnt a whole new world was out there in science communication. I didn't know what it was or what it meant. I learnt lots of new tricks and tips on how to talk about my research things that people are interested in, things that they don't really understand and need more work. So it was really eye-opening for me in that respect. So you you went through the New South Wales ones, but you went beyond the New South Wales semi-final. Yes, I did. I went to the Perth finals. So that was the national finals in Fremantle, actually, not Perth. 
and I won that competition there. And then I went to the UK to do the international round and there was a semi-finals and a finals there as well. And I was the global runner-up. So it was it was very, very humbling and very, you know, I felt very special afterwards, actually. I was, it was nice to see so many people interested in your research. And it gave you a little bit of a taste for science communication. Absolutely, it did. And just that hunger to get out and talk to people about what we do. I think I've always loved talking about my research, which is why the honey stuff really interested me, because people can relate to it. It's very easy to understand. Uh, and it's very easy for me to talk about because people are interested. But yeah, it was that big push to say, actually, it's more than just the few people that I talk to. Lots of people are interested in lots of different types of science. And I think as scientists, you know, a lot of us get into it because we want to make the world a better place or a positive change in the world. But people don't know what we're doing if we don't get out and talk about it. So I think it's helped get my research out there and definitely bring a good name to science that we do as well. And so you went on to things like TEDx. Yes, I have had lots of different opportunities come out of FameLab. So that three-minute presentation has brought me an invite to talk at TEDx, like you mentioned. Um, I've had lots of media coverage of my research. I've had lots of positive things happen in the beekeeping industry, the Australian beekeeping industry in particular, which I'm very passionate about helping. They've used that kind of exposure to help drive their own causes as well, which is very important to me. I've used this to sort of build my own public profile and my track record in non-traditional terms. So it's, it's great. I'm getting a lot of recognition from the industry, from the university, from the general public. It's been very rewarding for me. And you even turned up on the checkout. <laughs> yeah, that was one of my favourite things to do, actually. It was really funny. Lots of puns just up my alley. Yes, I did do the checkout. It was, it was great fun. It looked very good. <laughs> Thanks. It was good. And so what's next? I have just, last week actually, been awarded my first grant on my own to do some of the prebiotic honey research here at UTS, so I'm very excited about that. And again, it was the science communication and all the exposure that was a huge part in my getting that grant, so I feel very grateful for the FameLab experience again. So I'm going to do that. I'm still working on the antimicrobial stuff here. We've got a couple of students working on the honey projects that I manage here. So that's, that's it for the foreseeable future. But who knows if the checkout wants to do a repeat and this time we'll talk about the prebiotic honey, maybe I'll be back on that. Get a stand-up job. <laughs> oh, that'd be great. I mean, I'm not very good at acting though, so. Narelle Chok-Chedden, thank you very much. Thanks, Ian. It was great to talk to you. That was Narelle Chok-Chetan talking about the medicinal uses of honey at the Infection, Immunity and Innovation Institute at the University of Technology, Sydney. John, you mean... That's right, Murray. I got the promotion. Starting tomorrow, I'm no longer just a shipping clerk. I'm chairman of the board. And it's all because of... Your product here. Thus, the... Your name here. Dory. A story of refusal to admit defeat. A story of gallant men and women who kept faith and who molded the universal dream of a better life into reality through your product here. The living symbol of our national heritage. A story in the great tradition of George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, 
Franklin D. Roosevelt, and the other heroic figures who, like your company president here, dedicated their lives to humanity and whose contributions to the betterment of mankind will never be forgotten. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Would you like to hear your voice on radio? Record a voice memo on your phone or use the voicemail tab on the website. We need more people contributing stories to Diffusion. Send your contributions, opinions, helpful suggestions and donations to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. And please do send me an email so I know you're listening and you'd like to hear more episodes. Please like the Diffusion Science Radio page on Facebook and rate us on iTunes. Tell your friends. Follow me on Twitter at Ian Wolf. Join my patrons at patreon.com slash diffusionradio and support the show. The news music was Rhinos Theme by Kevin MacLeod on Wincompetech.com. Sound and fact-checking by Charles Willock. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia to 27 stations on the community radio network, including 2RBM in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales, 8CCC in Alice Springs and Tennant Creek, 2NVR in Nambucca Valley, 3MBR in the Mallee Border Districts of Victoria and South Australia, and 7LTN City Park Radio in Launceston, Tasmania. Diffusion is syndicated globally on the National Science Foundation's Science360 internet radio station and also on astronomy.fm. Subscribe to the podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com and check the website for links, photos and videos about this week's show. If you enjoyed the show, you can explore more than 900 previous episodes archived on diffusionradio.com where the shows are labelled by keywords so you can focus in on the stories you want to hear. Subscribe to the Diffusion YouTube channel at youtube.com slash c slash Diffusion Radio. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Science is fun. It helps you to learn, to know and to appreciate. When you study science, you may go on field trips. You discover the marvelous interrelationships between all living things. You learn to read the history of the Earth as it is written in rocks and fossils. You find out what makes things tick. Everything from a molecule to a living organism. In the study of science is found the most useful and satisfying knowledge of man. Knowledge of his physical world, its past, its present, and its future. And in your moments of relaxation, now and in the years to come, you will find the study of science leading you into fascinating pursuits. Photography. Collecting. Why study science? Study science because you will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life.